This is Women Authors of Achievement podcast, episode 8, with guest Jewel Sparks. Hello everyone, I'm your host Daria Suvorova and welcome to the show. In today's episode, I got to interview Jewel Sparks, a woman of many virtues and the first scientist joining me in the studio. With the motto, innovation comes from collaboration, she's scouting startups and building ventures at BitHouse Group and United 17 Ventures. We spoke of her journey as a scientist and the importance for scientists to acquire voice and presence in the world of business. In this episode, you will hear Jewel's take on genomics, the role it plays in the healthcare and disease prevention, and the significance of inclusive data sets. Join me for today's conversation with Jewel Sparks and make sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm thrilled to welcome a woman of many virtues and the first scientist on the podcast. Jewel, welcome. So great to have you here today. It's great to be here. You're wearing many hats, and I think we would need a full day of recording to cover all your incredible professional path. But let's see how far we get today. I would like to start with science and ask you, why did you decide one day to become a scientist and study molecular biology? Um, actually, I started in high school studying science because, uh, as you know or may not know, in the U.S., the the school system is a little bit different. So I think um, I knew probably starting in, I'd say, fifth grade that I actually wanted to do something in science. And I think that came as a result of my parents, specifically my dad, actually he had a, a heart attack earlier on. Uh, in my life. And my mom also had some heart um, irregularities in terms of arrhythmias. And so since health issues or cardiovascular issues were such a huge part of my youth, I just always knew that I wanted to do something to try to help fix people. You mentioned also earlier that one of the biggest risks you took was taking an opportunity in Japan. Could you tell me more about that story? Yes. So uh, during my senior year of college, Haverford has a scientific like a program collaboration with the University of Pennsylvania. So I spent the majority of my senior year on the campus of U of Penn, and I was working in a lab there studying T cells. And this particular T cell line had two alpha chains versus an alpha beta chain, which most T cells usually have. Anyway, with that being said, the scientist in charge of the lab got offered the position of director of the Institute of Immunology in Scuba, Japan and was really impressed with my research project and my scientific skills and asked me what I would think about, you know, taking a job in Japan after I graduated. And uh, before I really thought about it, I said, sure, yes, why not? <laughs> because I also remember growing up, my dad would always say, hey, if someone offers you an opportunity, you know, first say yes, because it may never come to you ever again, and then figure out like what you're going to do with it later. So that's exactly what happened. My exact impulse was just to say yes, I said yes. And then three months after I graduated from college, after all my visa and all that stuff, I was off to Japan. And I spent um, four years there in the middle of the Japanese countryside at this research institution with all these amazing Japanese top notch scientists who were studying uh, T-cells, and we did some great things within the time I was there. I remember walking into Japan, and I was, you know, the obnoxious American saying, hey, hello, 
how is everyone doing? Blah, blah, blah. And they were, they were saying, Ohio gozaimasu, Pakistan. Like, I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> and what ended up happening um, over the four years was actually very, very magical because I don't know if you've ever been to Japan, but the culture, I mean, everyone is so polite and everyone's so like reserved and, you know, there's not really a lot of exchange, like emotional exchange about how people feel. Like you just, that's culturally, you just don't really think about those things. But by the time I left, I realized that I became even more introverted than I was and shared less and how my colleagues were sharing more about their personal lives as well as their professional lives, but in more detail and, you know, communicating a lot more. So there was this osmosis, which is a scientific term, but I love it because it's true. Like the more I was in that environment, the more I became like them and then the more they became like me. And it was like an amazing cultural exchange and life-changing moment, actually. I know with life, especially since I lost my father my sophomore year of college, that, you know, so many times people are like, you know, one day I'll do this or one day I'll do that. And I think when I lost my father, what I realized is that every single day things are changing and how important it is to basically acquire the skills throughout your life and your career so you also can be forever changing and remain relevant. That's why also you took then the studies uh, in executive management and completely made that switch in your career. Yeah, so it wasn't necessarily a switch. I would say it was an addition to. So I think when you're a highly technical person, like there's some people that are just technical and they have no creative skills or, you know, and I was kind of at our communication skills. And believe it or not, I was kind of one of those people like I, I my communication skills were OK, I would say in high school, but I think also when I went to Japan, like, and I became more introverted because I was in a culture that really wasn't that expressive. When I, I had some challenges when I returned back to the States because in uh, the States, if you don't really communicate what you're doing or communicate what your skill sets are, you really can get left out in the game. Like, it's really important for you to have certain skills and to be good at what you do, but also be able to communicate and share with people what you actually do. And so it took me actually about three years to kind of become back, I would say, normalized to like the American culture and society. And with that being said, I started to reflect on my life and my career, being a woman, being a woman of color, and how there were a lot of times in my life where I had contributed to the bottom line and to a lot of change and transformation and things that really would impact society and lives on a global level, but I did not have the voice along with those skills. And so what motivated me to go and get the MBA while I was working for Procter & Gamble Healthcare actually is because I was like, I really need to know, one, how to really understand business like what is like return on investment, like, you know, budgeting, how much, you know, resources or a budget should go towards R&D. What about marketing, communications, all those things, because you can't just have a good product and actually not know it, not communicate it right, not reach early adopters in order for things to scale. So that's what what motivated me, because I didn't want to continue being that kind of puppeteer that was like coming up with great ideas and giving them to other people and allowing other people to take 100% credit for those ideas and concepts. So that's why I went to get my MBA. Very impressive. 
Before we move to the next uh, chapter of our conversation, I wanted still to back up a bit and ask you about the the genomic age of uh, medicine, because it promises profound ramifications for human health, giving more guidance for personalized medicine, precision in diagnostics and next generation treatments. Jewel, what is your take on genomics and what role will it play in healthcare and disease prevention? Genomics, I mean, has been around for a very long time. But the deal is, is that, I mean, I want to take it actually a little step further. Um, So with genomics, as you know, you're basically, it's the study of like the whole organization of genes or like the human like genome. And with genetics, you're looking at like how your whole like heredity, how it predisposes you to like other illnesses or elements or things like that. The reason I want to take a step back is I think that obviously, you know, genomics plays a huge role in things. But one of the big issues in terms of like if we're looking at novel proteins or like special like medicines, you see a lot of uh, biotech companies that are working with really rare diseases and things like that. One of the issues is, is that just like with data and things like that, your data is only as good as your data set. And one of the things, and I want to talk about, for example, the vaccine. And I know it's a hot topic and some people stay away from it. I don't want to stay away from it because this topic because one of the things is I think that things only work as good again as your data set. And if we look on a whole, like, you know, the percentage of women or the percentage of diverse peoples or BIPOC folks like within like the study population of like how like the the vaccine, for example, one of the reasons I think that we have some anti-vaxxers or whatever is that there's a lot of history in terms of like either people like really being included in studies and then for research and technology and therapeutics being something that helps them or them being like kind of like guinea pigs in terms of let's see like if we give this horrible thing to these people or this group of people like how will they react or how will their genes react. So my thing is I think that science and genomics and things like that and in treatments they are great but I think we have to go back and make sure that the systems that study these different novel genes, proteins, genomes, that it's an inclusive data set and one that is really one that is supposed to enhance or make all human beings and mankind better. You know, so for example, like if we look at clinical trials, we need to do a better job of making sure that those clinical trials and like the call for people from the community is like broader, that it's just, I mean, this is, we talk about this in technology. We talk about like diversity in technology, like women, more women in technology, more women getting funded, more like people of diverse ethnicities or ages or experiences being funded versus coming from that quote unquote, like that special breed of folks that you know, are in tech. So how to have that inclusive data? What steps should be done? Yeah. So what we have to do, I feel, is we have to make sure like, you know, for example, like if there's a call for clinical trials or, you know, if people are studying certain things that like we advertise like in different areas where people from different cultures basically like trust. Maybe it's a community center versus like something just on the internet, on an Instagram or something or LinkedIn. You know, again, we're assuming that that all people are taking advantage or have access or use LinkedIn. But the truth is, if you're potentially 
a blue collar worker and you're working in a manufacturing, whether it's an aircraft plant or a car plant, you're probably not sitting on LinkedIn all day trying to see what the latest, like greatest thing is on trends and transformation. So with that being said, you know, if there's workers unions and things like that, that's probably where you get your information from. So we just need to take into account that if we want to make sure that we have inclusive data sets, that we're inclusive of different communication channels to make sure that we can get all people involved. So then all the data and all the resources that we have are really something where we can come up with like treatments that help everybody. If you don't have like within these even diagnostic tests, like a, a whole bunch of different DNA or, or genomic or genetic profiles, even the test, someone may have an illness and it may not pick up till it's like a late stage. Jewel, you said that we're only as good as the environments we grow in. And specifically, we all start as a seed and depending on how pure and balanced our soil, water and environment, this is how it shapes our lives and the journey we take. Does this explain the life of your life of continuous relocation and exploration and you were finding that pure soil for yourself to grow? I have like pretty good genes from my family. I think my environment was a very healthy one. Like they always encouraged me to follow my dreams. Uh, they never discouraged me to do anything. My dad was always like, you should try something at least once. If it doesn't work, then you know. I mean, but that's why you need to go get an education. Like you need to get an education with some tangible skill sets. So, you know, you at least have that foundation. And he always said, and I'll never forget, he's like, the one thing that every individual has is like, if you go and you get an education, that's something that you achieve on your own. No one can take that from you. Whereas like, if you look at career paths and things like that, you know, like if the boss doesn't like you or what, I mean, they can take that away from you. But at the end of the day, what you have left are the things that you personally accomplished and that you personally achieved, which actually have nothing to do with anyone else. And education is kind of one of those things where you're like down there. I mean, it's like you're studying. I mean, at the end of the day, you get that like piece of paper and you're like, I did that. And no matter how many jobs you have, no matter how many bad bosses you have, no matter how crappy the world is right now, I mean, that's like something like if you studied something and you were passionate about it and you're certified in it, that's something that nobody can ever take away from you. Like no matter what, you like you can be like, yeah, I got that, I did that. <laughs> so part of that traveling and living in different cities and countries was your educational path. You wanted oh, to yeah. acquire knowledge. Oh, yeah. You, you were know, chasing knowledge. Yeah. I don't know if I was, I think I just like, I think I was like conditioned to like gravitate towards things that were different or things that I didn't know. Right. And that's the thing. Like you can read in a book, like what it's like in Germany. You can read in a book what it's like in Japan, but I'm telling you until you're actually there living every day, trying to go to the grocery store, trying to fill your gas up with your car up with gas and you don't speak a language and it takes you two hours to actually try to <laughs> communicate to the people that you need some gas in your car because your car like ran out of gas like three blocks away. Like that's some real, like that's some education there. You have to live and breathe that culture and that environment to really understand But then it. that's street smartness. Mm, I don't know if it's street smart. That's education. That's a different type of education. It's not an education that you read in a book and you can regurgitate because you have good memory cells. This is like real life, real world education, life education, the education of life. And do you think your professional and personal life would be completely different if you would not take all those opportunities? 
I think my life would be completely different, I'd say, if I didn't experience loss. Loss of a loved one who completely always told me to follow my dreams. Because I think there's a lot of people, like, they lose things or they lose people, but if those people don't really add value or they, like, inflict pain upon you, you're, like, kind of good riddance, right? But I think when you have such champions or like you're in environments that really help you grow and it's just positive. And if that's lost or, you know, or there there's some kind of hiccup that's there or like you don't have that anymore, you realize just the value that that was. And I think the loss of my father my second year of college, I got the opportunity offered to me two years after he passed away. And that also gave me the courage actually to say yes to something like I totally didn't know what the outcome would be. Because I think when I went to school the day or, you know, that, you know, I lost my father, I didn't know that that by the end of that day that he wasn't going to exist. And then that's when the reality hit me that we really don't know what's going to happen moment to moment. So if some opportunities present themselves, since we don't really know, we can think we want to know, we can try to be like obsessive and compulsive and plan the direction of everything. But the truth is, and this is why I feel like also this whole pandemic has also been magical. People had like things mapped out for years and years and moments and moments of what they wanted to do. And I think it's for the first time the world and society realize that, you know, we and what we plan and what we want to do, that's like... A great idea, but there may be other circumstances and things that may completely sideswipe those ideas and those concepts. A few days ago, we spoke over the phone uh, and you mentioned the importance of self-esteem and what it plays in one's health. Could you elaborate what you meant by this? Yeah, you know, there's like a big thing right now where we're talking about health and well-being and mental wellness. There's been huge growth in the tech scene with, uh, you know, like mental wellness uh, startups where you can talk to a therapist or dial up a therapist. And, the, and I think it's really important. But I think what's happened is, and the reason I said that that's a situation is environment. Like a lot of folks, even right now, you know, I used to travel like three times a week. There's other tons of people, some people that travel like five days a week. And for the first time, you know, a lot of us are having to stay at home because we just can't travel because you just can't travel. <laughs> you just can't go anywhere. And actually a part of us, we don't really want to travel. Once you do travel, you're like, oh my God, that was like really traumatizing. And so what we're realizing is that all this change in our environment, it's actually forcing us to be still. And it's forced a lot of us to really like think about who we are or really see who we are, like who we are being still. And there's nothing better than being still because you really have to be still. And it just like forces you to listen to every single thing. Listen to your environment, listen to your mind, listen to your body, listen to the things inside of you that are like all of a sudden there's an uproar, right? And so I think environment is important. And I think what a lot of us have realized is those of us that have healthier environments especially during the pandemic, we're able to make it through the days a lot faster and it's we're still like happy. But some of us are realizing that if we're still and in the environment or in the family dynamics or the relationship dynamics, that really for the first time, those things aren't really working for us and it's forcing us to make some really tough decisions or not. 
And I think sometimes the strength of being able to make tough decisions comes from us feeling confident in whatever decision we decide to make, which is best for us. So then it means that people with low self-esteem make the bad decisions for themselves. I don't know. It depends. It depends on how good your partner or your environment is, because you can have low self-esteem, but if you have someone in your space that truly cares about you, like unselfishly, you can actually still be in a situation and your self-esteem gets a little bit better because maybe for the first time it's, it's quiet and you still can, I think you still, you can grow. I mean, I wouldn't want, I think that that's a harsh, I mean, and I'm not like a technological psychologist that can say if you have low self-esteem, you're going to make bad decisions. That's like harsh because everybody's insecure in some area of their life, right? It just depends on which area, maybe. What what causes burnout? I'm trying to understand because I hear a lot of people having burnouts at the moment. What is the cause of it? I think it varies. I mean, sometimes people are just overstressed. Sometimes people are doing things that they don't really like to do. Since 2016, you're a guest lecturer at WHO, Otter Beisheim School of Management, one of the Germans' leading and most selective business schools with campuses in Wallander and Dusseldorf. What do MBA students are craving for these days? Real life work experience. So in the particular course that I teach, it's corporate innovation and transformation. I really focus on, you know, obviously you can go and you can regurgitate all the information, you know, financial business modeling, SWOT analysis, all these tools that you get in business school, but to actually put it in action You know, sometimes you don't get that till you get in the real world. And sometimes it's too late because maybe you have a boss that doesn't have the patience in order for you to learn it. So basically, during my two days, by the end of the day, they I divide the class into two different teams. They either rebuild a company or they rebuild an industry. And so the next day they come to the class and they're actually C-suite executives, And uh, depending on the class size, sometimes we have two co-CEOs, two co-corporate social responsibility folks. And most importantly, also make sure we have a diversity and inclusion department. We have a strategy department. And obviously, we have a technical department. So if you look at in a marketing and communications, because if you look at those different silos within organizations, those are really all the silos that need to work together in order for a product or a campaign to be truly successful. You can't have your tech guys not talking to the business development guys or not talking to the R&D department or not talking to the CEO or, you know, diversity and inclusion. Otherwise, you've already started off where I don't think things would be even equally distributed amongst your customers. So they really want to know, like, how to take these tools, put them into action and come up with a real solution and solve problems. In your opinion, what role does MBA play today? Times have changed. I mean, I also remember where some universities, they were like, you have to be in person. I actually have been very lucky in during the pandemic, able to teach the classes virtually. And I think for me, that's been great because I've been able to tune into and actually have experts that I know across the globe kind of drop box in and spend like an hour of their time with the students where they kind of really get truly, truly, truly a real world 
tangible experience with people who are sitting in these C-suite or upper management roles and making decisions for their organizations, not just in Germany, where they could usually in the past just physically make it to the class and talk to the class. But now, like, kind of what's going on in business on a global level. So I think it's been really great. So I think that the MBA, I would say, is just a credential. I mean, like we see in Europe, like everyone really, if they have a PhD, they like to say doctor so-and-so. But the truth is, on a global, nobody really cares if you're a doctor. They care kind of if you're making a difference and if whatever you learned, you're able to apply it and actually create something and do something and impact lives of people. I mean, no one cares about your title. They really care about like how you can piece all the stuff you know together and make something happen. And how do you integrate all your vast knowledge at the BitHouse Group and United 17 Venture Lab? And what achievements are you really proud to share? I'm glad you asked that because a lot of people say, what do you do? And actually, my answer is I do what is necessary what I do what needs to be done. And I, I literally think I can say that because I have all the different tools. And it's actually, I kind of like, like it when no one can figure out what I do, because then I don't necessarily get targeted to do things that I don't really want to do. So I like, I like when people are confused about who I am and what I do or what I think I do. But uh, BitHouse actually started out and it stands for Best in Tech House. And and it was basically kind of semi-born in 2007. And this was after me spending um, probably having three different roles throughout my career in corporate institutions and then also with a startup. But then about three or four years running into technical difficulties with management within the organizations. And it was kind of like a, a trend because, you know, the first year you're with the organization, you're trying to, like, figure out what you're supposed to be doing. The second year, you kind of can actually start checking off the list, maybe, of some of the things you're supposed to. By the third year, you're supposed to really start seeing results. And uh, with me, I mean, this is something that's happened throughout my career. I mean, I'm, I'm very much an overachiever. Sometimes people don't think so because there's some people that like to do busy work. So you can see them always doing something. But I'm since I'm a scientist, I like to take in everything that's happening. And then but when I get going and like it just is like it's just like a volcano or something like the stuff just keeps moving. Right. And so this is what happened. But I would always run into these issues with like the glass ceiling issue that we talk about, you know, as women, female professionals, women in tech. And I created BitHouse as and at first it was strategic diversity group to help organizations realize that it's okay to gravitate towards non-traditional business ideas and concepts that come from non-traditional people in leadership. And uh, so what I'm really proud of is that it's an initiative that has grown and that it has evolved. And at first it was only focused on women and um, the underrepresented groups. Then when I moved to Germany in 2013, I realized that there was another issue as it related to European um, innovators, as it related to them being able to attract venture capital and how there was a huge difference in like venture capital as well as valuations in the U.S. versus venture capital and investment in Europe. And so then it was like, how do I bridge the gap between like European ecosystems and U.S. ecosystems? Because neither one of them 
in my personal opinion, are the right systems. And I think the sweet spot is somewhere in between. I typically choose about 25 innovators a year. It's like a donation of services. And in Europe, people are like, if something's worth it, it should not be for free. But actually where I come from, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, people work together. And it's about innovation comes from collaboration. So United 17 was a result of that. And then me realizing and with Greta Thunberg, like totally being inspired by her and how she was moving youth and how really there's this like this huge need and opportunity as like the climate is changing and people are getting sick, you know, like this huge like need. And I'm a climate, a trained climate reality leader as well. Like the need for youth, you know, people earlier on and also ex-working mothers actually, so I have a lot of friends that are mothers, and they are badasses. I mean, like, they were top, like, executives, and then they started their families. They want to get back into the workplace. They don't think they should take the time for themselves to get back into the workplace. And I was like, this is a great idea. Like, let's open up, make sure that more youth are aware about sustainable about fields or jobs and sustainability or opportunities or what is sustainability. And at the same time, maybe this is a way for some of these amazing mothers who have these amazing skills and they've dedicated their time, you know, put their careers kind of on tap, you know, until like the kids get older where they can also start still contributing and utilizing their skills in areas of sustainability, whether it's a part-time role or whether it's doing workshops to educate youth or to educate like the underrepresented. And so that's how United 17, the Venture Lab came about. And United 17 Ventures is also looking at the sustainable development goals, scouting different technological solutions that align with the 16 of the goals, using strategic partnerships and venture or investment in order to help scale uh, these solutions across the globe. I actually was Googling you yesterday. And I came across a picture of you and Bill Clinton. <laughs> what occasion was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was back in my socialite days in San Francisco. You know, he launched the Millennial Network, which was for high net worth, like younger individuals. And he actually, uh, first it was launched in New York. And then that actually picture was taken when it was launched. And he came and introduced it to San Francisco. So I actually was on the organizing committee for that. Um, and helped kind of with the invite list, like kind of the who's who, uh, you know, the young professionals or the the socialites in the in the Bay Area that should be invited to that. So I, I was part of that. And so that photo was taken then. But I love that photo because the funny thing about that photo is a select few of us were able to take the photo, obviously due to the amount of resources that we raised in order for, you know, to be there and to be a VIP host and all that stuff. And so the security uh, detail and the producers of the event, they said, okay, you know, we have quite a few people that, well, it, was, it wasn't a lot, but we have some folks, obviously, you're, what you need to do is you just need to walk up, put your hand out, and look straight at the camera so we can take the photo so we can keep the line moving. So I totally did that. It, it was like my time and I like go up, I took my, put my hand out and I'm looking at the camera and then he doesn't put his hand out at all. And he leans over and he says, and you would be, and I think I forgot my name. I literally forgot my name. It was like 10 seconds. 
because first of all, he's his presence is so like amazing. Like he's very tall and his voice is like really nice. And I literally went blank. I had like a moment of mild cognitive impairment. Like I had Alzheimer's of my name. So uh, 10 seconds later, I was able to be, oh, yes, 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 yes. My name is <laughs> Jewel Sparks and I'm one of your VIP hosts for the evening. And he says, well, thank you very much. Uh, it's a really great event. And I was like, okay, thank you. But so I love that photo because it reminds me of that moment where I forgot my name. <laughs> That's a beautiful story. <laughs> we all have those moments. We all have those moments. Jewel, my favorite question. Who do you define as a woman who is an author of her own achievements? A woman who's an author of her own achievements. You know, I'm going to go with someone I admire who was an innovator in her own right and basically was really, I mean, for me, able to bring things full circle for me as an overachiever woman in science who had a nice tan, and I'd say Oprah Winfrey, because she had a voice, and she used that voice to curate and bring to stage folks that everybody and sometimes nobody could relate to, but it was that bridge of that mainstream content, that um, articulation of voice that was able to break, I feel, down a lot of barriers and for people to maybe for the first time, you know, be able to see someone who was highly educated, who may on the outside look different, but at the same time, be able to humanize them and realize that we're all the same. And I think throughout my career and my life, that was needed. Because it, usually sometimes if you see folks, you know, you, you notice on, on the news, or if you're watching TV, for some reason, they love sometimes to pick people that definitely never looked like me or definitely didn't come from my background, you know, of like having resources or being part of mainstream. You know, I have my teeth. I don't walk around with a hair scarf on or speak non-proper English, but I'm still like a black Native American female who studied STEM, who has an MBA, and who went to school all my life with people who were different than me. And so I understand people and I see people for people the way that my parents raised me to see people for people, not what they look like, not what they have or don't have, but to always search for that human factor, that commonality, and then use your differences to basically be able to even impact more people. This is beautiful. Jewel, thank you for sharing your knowledge, your personal journey, and snippets of your incredible life. Thank you so much for coming, and I wish you a beautiful day. Thank you for having me. It was fun. I really love talking about Bill Clinton, my favorite. <laughs> I forgot my name. So thank you very much for, for having me. It was really fun. You really unlocked some of those like great, crazy amazing moments in my life that really still motivate me to still want to do things to help other people and to to try to make the world a better place. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. 
And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.